the last time I stepped up here, we were wrapping up a series out of the book of Hebrews. It's a section of the Bible that opens up with these words. This is Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Now, we decided that it'd be good to follow up that series with a series where we're talking about that message that was spoken through the Son. There's a challenge that naturally follows coming out of that, and that's this. If Christians are called to be followers of Christ, how do we accurately and how do we effectively share the message that God spoke through His Son? That's what this series is all about. Trying to take that message and communicate it accurately and effectively. Today we're going to wrestle with this question. How do we welcome people like Jesus did? That is a deceptively challenging question, isn't it? How do we do this really, really well? If you read through the Bible, you see that this is tough. Because Jesus was able to do two things that don't naturally seem to come together. He was able to both love people just as they are. Was Jesus great at that? He was great at that. He loved people just as they are. And, and he invited people to live lives that were fully devoted to God. Like when we were singing here, I surrender all. He did both of those things. Loved us just as we are and called us to be something greater than we could ever be on our own. Well, this morning, we're going to open up with a clip because we got to go to some pretty tough places today. So we'll open up with a, a fun little clip here. It's from a movie that was in theaters not too long ago. It just got released uh, for, on DVD just like this week, I think it was. Um, it's called The Resurrection of Gavin Stone. And uh, we've got a little clip here. The protagonist in this clip is a Hollywood hipster named Gavin who had made one too many mistakes. So there's Gavin. He's all Hollywood hipster. Well, as the movie opens... Gavin had got into all kinds of trouble, and so now he had to do 200 hours of community service. So here's Gavin cleaning the bathrooms at Masonville Bible Church. That's part of his community service. So he's thinking this is just not going to be cool because he was a Hollywood kid star. He still thinks of himself as Mr. Hollywood. He's like, what am I doing cleaning bathrooms? Well, then he finds out this church has a huge Jesus play. And he's thinking, this is the way for me to run out the clock on community service, because I am professional actor guy. I'm going to audition for the lead. What an awesome way to do community service to be Jesus. I can do that. And it got even better. Like this, this sweet deal seemed to be all the sweeter because the director was this girl named Kelly, this woman named Kelly. So he's like, this is going to be the best community service ever. I'm going to get a girlfriend out of the deal. I get to do acting. This is going to be awesome. There was only one problem to his plan. And that problem was that you had to be a Christian to be in the cast. Gavin said, not sure exactly what that all entails, but I'll identify as a Christian if it means that I can do this for my community service. I'd encourage you to write this in your notes because this question is one that we're also going to be weaving in here into the message. Is it enough to identify as a Christian? If we're welcoming people into the faith, is it enough for them to say, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian? Well, just as Gavin would for any role that he was going to play, he did a little research before he went to church for the first time to one of their services. So he got in line, he Googled, okay, what is, it, what is a Christian? What does it look like? And this is what he came up with. 
Anybody else cringe a little bit during that communion scene? I was like, oh, ouch. The other thing I noticed, I didn't notice till the first service, um, the, I, I was always looking around, right? I was looking around. Am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? Well, if you ever wondered um, why we do what we do here before we invite people to come to the Lord's table, which we're going to be doing at the end of the service here today, I hope this illustrates a little bit of why. Um, we always try to do at least two things um, when we invite people to come to the Lord's table. And one is just to let people know the process so they don't kind of get into those awkward <laughs> moments of what, what do I do? But the other one is far more important. And the other thing we always try to do is we always try to extend the invitation in a God-honoring way. I grew up in a tradition where we had communion regularly and it got to the point where it was easy to just go through the motions. And, and we don't want it to be easy to go through the motions here because of the way the Bible presents this invitation of Holy Communion. Holy Communion is a holy sacrament and there appears to be almost like an opening height to come forward. Now, opening height is a, a term from the world of track and field. I love track and field. I was never good at high jump, but love track and field. And opening height is a term that sometimes you'll have in the bigger track meets if you're a high jumper. And what that means, and I brought a high jump bar here with us today. What that means is in certain meets, just to be able to get in, just to be able to compete, you have to clear a minimum height. And if you can't clear that minimum height, you're welcome to watch from the stands. But you're not going to be competing on the field. The Bible does put some boundaries around Holy Communion. And let's take a look. Here are some words that, that, that we read almost every time we re have communion. Uh, it's from 1 Corinthians. If you want to open this up, we'd encourage you to take a look. And if you'd like to have a Bible like some other people, just like Gavin, <laughs> we've, got, uh, we've got some copies. And if at least two of you take them, then you'll have like the other person's book, right? We have the same book. But anyway, each and every week we, we keep a stack there. We encourage you to, to take one home. All right, so this is from 1 Corinthians. And these are the words, we call them often the words of institution that we read before we um, invite people to come forward. For what I received, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting with verse 23. For what I received from the Lord, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's what comes next. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine themselves then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So at a minimum, the scriptures say that if we're going to come forward to receive this sacrament, we're instructed to examine ourselves. And this isn't the only time where there appears to be some sort of opening height, if you will, for professing Christians who want to gather around certain tables. Here's another example. And if you're getting a little on edge, I, I don't blame you. This one is found in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 12. 
I wrote you, so this comes just four chapters or so, well, six chapters before what we just read. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you'd have to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater or reveler or drunkard or swindler. Not, you shouldn't even eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Now, there's more in this section that we could unpack in a month. But let's at least touch on a, a few things here that studied, that stuck out to me as I was studying this text. And I want to begin with this. For the record, Paul is not saying, there's a lot of things he's not saying, but one of the things he's not saying is you should never eat with people who are guilty of these things. He basically says you would have to leave this world to do that. You'd have to leave this world. In fact, in this week's small group discussion or small church discussion guides, Jason included on purpose a, a section of scripture where it shows Jesus is eating with sinners. And there's a whole lot of religious people pointing fingers at Jesus and they're judging Jesus for that. What are you doing eating with the sinners? So Jesus is, is setting an example, a precedent for that. What Paul does is he flips this around. He says, you know what? Quit pointing fingers at the outside. Let's start by examining ourselves. Let's start by examining ourselves and hold ourselves to a different standard as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, it's interesting if you had your Bibles open and you, you look at this section, this, second, this 1 Corinthians chapter 5 section, you're going to see that there's references right before this that lead right into this that are, are references to a Jewish Passover meal. And very early on, Christians began to see links between the Passover and the cross. In fact, one of my sources, I was studying this, said this, every breath that a Christian takes is a silent Passover hymn of gratitude to the God who has acted to save the world through Jesus. Now for Paul, our willingness then, if we're going to gather around for such a sacred event, Paul is saying, we've got to hold each other accountable. And he even goes as far as to say, this is an issue of sincerity and truth. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 5.8. So the verse that comes right before the verse that I just read says, let us therefore celebrate with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth was a big deal to Jesus. What's in your heart? Sincerity and truth was a big deal to his disciples. Nothing mattered more to God or to Jesus. Nothing mattered more to Jesus than pleasing his father, than honoring his father. And in a Corinthian culture that was remarkably similar to our own, Paul made it clear that moral indifference, deliberate sin, these types of things are incompatible with authentic faith. Now, here's a quote I found really interesting. As I was looking into the history, the historical context here, I found this. This is from the IVP Bible background commentary. Rome, the occupational force at the time, Rome allowed local Jewish communities to judge Jewish officials, let me try this again. Rome allowed local Jewish communities to judge Jewish offenders of Jewish laws. This judgment and the discipline 
were carried out in the synagogues. Paul expects Christians of his day to follow the same model, correcting the behavior of erring fellow Christians. In other words, in that time and in that place, Rome, the the power that would be, said, hey, Jewish people, you can judge each other based on your laws. You go ahead and take care of that in your synagogues. And Paul is saying, Rome makes accommodation for this for the Jewish people. Why, Why would we as Christians not do the same? Now, as strong as the words sound coming out of my mouth right now, I'm giving a soft version of the language that actually shows up in the text. If we were to keep reading and we went beyond where we had just left off, if we went to 1 Corinthians 5.13, we'd see that Paul quotes Deuteronomy. He quotes Deuteronomy 17.17, and he tells believers to, quote, purge the evil. Those are the words that used in Deuteronomy. Those are the words Paul uses. Purge the evil from their church. And in Deuteronomy, the method for purging the evil was stoning. So if you're on edge a little bit, you are not the only one. Because what do we do with this? How do we reconcile these passages with Jesus of Nazareth who turned to that woman caught in the act of adultery and said, to those religious people ready to throw stones. What do he say? Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. So if you're feeling tension here, it is by design because the scripture has these tensions. How do you reconcile? How do you welcome people as Jesus did? Where he loved them just as they are and he called them to be fully devoted to God. How do you welcome as Jesus welcomed? This quote from N.T. Wright, I believe, brings us one step closer to answers. He says, God will judge those on the outside in his own time and in his own manner. But the Christian community, as Paul is going to stress in the next chapter, meaning chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, he has the God-given right and duty to discriminate between those who are living in the Messiah's way and those who aren't. Well, if we're going to be serious about embodying the message, if we're going to move beyond Minnesota nice, and that's one of the reasons why this is so uncomfortable, isn't it? There are probably some places in, in our country where this would be like, yeah, preach it, condemn those people or whatever. That doesn't work here, at least not in this culture, man. And it shouldn't work in this culture, should it, among God's people? We'll get to that in a second. There's going to be times where we need to confront individuals who identify as Christian but aren't following the example of Jesus Christ. So how do you do that well? Isn't that the question? How do you do that well? Because it is so easy to do it not well, isn't it? It is so easy to do that not well. It is so easy to err on the side of cheap grace or on the side of pointing fingers. I love this quote. This is from a book that we have the reference in your notes called The Ragamuffin Gospel. I'd encourage you to take a look at this, that book sometime. The author, Brennan Manning, writes this. He said, The institutional church has become a wounder of the healers rather than a healer of the wounded. Can I get an amen? And this is probably one of the reasons why I'm seeing so much tension in your faces and in your bodies right now. This is not where we're going. It's really easy to go there for a lot of folks. That's not where we're going because that's not where the Bible goes. Jesus never envisioned a church that failed to extend grace. Never. But... Neither, neither 
did he envision a church that abandons truth? Jesus embodied both grace and truth. So if we're going to represent him well, where do we set the bar? How do we not set the bar so high that it doesn't represent God well? How do we set the bar, not set the bar so low that we don't represent God well? And what makes this so challenging is even a quick read of the Bible, especially the New Testament, makes this clear. And there's a place to write this in your notes. Jesus cleared opening height for us. Can I get an amen? Isn't that the gospel right there? Jesus cleared opening height for us in his subsequent letter his follow-up letter to first corinthians in second corinthians five twenty one, paul writes for our sake god made jesus to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of god this is the gospel this is the good news and there is power here there is power here This is how 1 Corinthians opens up. Chapter 1, as early as chapter 1, verse 18, Paul makes this. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And you'll notice in passages like this, there's a distinction that's drawn between the perishing and the saved. So we've got a message of eternal significance here. And those who receive it, we don't receive it or we don't achieve it by clearing the bar. Jesus cleared opening height. And I was thinking about this illustration. And and if this were camp and we could get as campy as you can get at camp and we had this bar and we were going to have communion, I'd put that bar in the front of the room. I'd put that bar as something we'd all pass through on the way to communion. And I would say to the teens, this isn't something we try to go over. This is something we go under. Isn't that true? This is something we go under. Opening height, there's a place to write this in your notes. Opening height for Jesus' follower, it's humility. That's opening height. This is where the power of of the gospel, one of the places, the power of the gospel is released. Opening height for Christians is to come before God saying, I have nothing to offer you that isn't already a gift from you. Yours is truly an amazing grace. I found this quote as I was preparing for this message. This is also out of the ragamuffin gospel. The saved sinner is prostrate in adoration, lost in wonder and praise. He knows that repentance is not what we do in order to earn forgiveness. It is what we do because we've been forgiven. In his brokenness, the repentant prodigal knew an intimacy with his father that his self-righteous brother would never know. How do we call out the sins of the saints in a God-honoring way? It starts with humility. It starts with brokenness. It starts with an acknowledgement of, I can't clear this bar either. Sometimes on my best day, I'll maybe clear this height or this height, and then the next day I'll knock that bar down too. We all got our stuff. It's about coming into a room like this, not, hey, before you get in, make sure you can jump over. 
It's about all of us coming under, saying welcome to this family full of sinners who've been changed by Jesus and have found something real, something that's changing us. It's about being honest, sincerity and truth. Here's another great quote. You know, I, that, that book I've been recommending like five times here in the message. Um, chapter 7 alone is worth the price of that book. And we're going to press into some of those things from chapter 7 next week. But here's a teaser. Self-deception mortgages our sinfulness and prevents us from seeing ourselves as we really are. If we say we have no sin, if we claim to be bar clearers, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And if that's the case, if we think of ourselves as bar clearers, then anytime we start pointing a finger at somebody else, it is going to have a very, very different feel. It's going to feel a lot more like a Pharisee pointing a finger than a brother or sister who's coming alongside saying, hey, let's, can we have a conversation here? A few pages later, Brennan writes this. I included this quote at the bottom of your notes because it took me probably 15, 20 reads to even start to let this one sink in. It's so rich. He writes, many of us pretend to believe that we're sinners. Consequently, all we can do is pretend to believe that we're forgiven. Until we really start to realize what this means, that we truly are sinners that have been saved by grace. The power of the gospel is not released. When we understand the passion behind the words, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can begin to experience a transformation. From the outside, if you're on the outside looking in on this, if you reject the notion that there even is such a thing called sin, or if you pretend to believe that you're forgiven, God's plan to share the gospel is going to sound absolutely crazy. Because here it is. Here's God's plan to reach the world. <laughs> God entrusted the message and ministry of reconciliation to who? Bunch of sinners. That's who he's trusted. This too. He's, he's entrusted sinners with the message of calling people to holiness. Isn't that crazy? Bunch of sinful people calling other people to holiness. That's, that's the plan. And on the surface, it seems like a crazy plan. But here's the thought that came to me as I've been praying about this and reflecting on this all week. Penitent sinners, penitent sinners might be the only ones who can extend authentic grace well. And I know I, I can't communicate this. So I pray the Holy Spirit does. Because this is the key right here. Those who are penitent, penitent can be a dysfunctional word. It also can be a beautiful word. It can be a word that reflects a humble desire to be honest before God, but to pursue his will. Think how different it, it sounds when someone comes to you from that place and says, you know, I've got some concerns. I'm not perfect. Not even close. I got some concerns. Can we talk about this? It comes from a totally different place. Nothing is more detestable than a self-righteous judge. Amen. It's a total different thing when it feels like it's coming from someone who really loves you and really cares about you and someone who isn't all pretentious about <laughs> how great or holy they are. What if our gentle rebukes came from a person who embodied this? God loves me as I am and not as I should be because I'm never going to be as I should be. Never. Never. 
And that's one of the reasons why those who really receive this message, this gospel message, why they, they get transformed. Because that's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. It makes you want to clear, clear the bar. When you realize he cleared it for us and he's this coach, he's not just like, you failed again, you failed again. No, it's, he's this one who believes in us. He says, you missed? All right, let's try again. That's when we begin the transition from playing Jesus to embodying his message. That's when the very spirit of Christ becomes alive in us. And I want to encourage you to write this one last thing down. The most compelling invitations come from those who've sat at the table. The most compelling invitations come from those who've experienced God's amazing grace. And now before we extend the invitation for you to join us at the table, I want to show you an example of what this looks like. And I'm going to use that clip. I'm going to show another clip from the movie. We open the, 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 this message here with a video where Gavin self-identified as a Christian so that he could play Jesus. And he got the part. He got the part. Here's a picture of him. Uh, you know, they're practicing the lines. You know, he, 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 he was trying his best with Shakespearean actor ability to, to portray Jesus. And he would say these lines. And, and, and as he would say these lines, he began to question, like, why would he say that? Why would he not say this? And a transformation began to happen in him over the course of this movie. And not only did he begin to learn more about Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching, but he encountered imperfect people who embodied Jesus' message. And it changed him. And it changed him far more than any self-righteous Pharisee with a pointing finger could have. And in the clip that I want to show you here, the clip that we're about to see, I hope you can, you can catch this thing where, where now he's no longer just saying lines. He's no longer just playing Jesus. He can't just, in the scene, he can't just let the rich young ruler walk away. And what's so funny, you'll see this here. Now, instead of him being the one kind of looking around to the church people, the church people start looking around because he's not following the script. It's as if Jesus is alive in him. And in, when, when he, there's the scene of, of the woman caught in adultery and he pauses to write in the sand, he has an idea of what Jesus might have written. And when he's on the cross, Gavin identifies with brokenness and surrender in a way that he never had before. Let's watch the clip. In the theater, I was just wiping my eyes like crazy because that's our hope for all of us it's our hope that Christianity won't feel like you're saying lines like you're playing a part but rather it's going to be reality that it's like finding a treasure in a field that you would gladly leave everything else to keep and when we try to share this message with other people, it's not coming from a place of guilt. It's not coming from a place of holier than thou. It's not coming from a place of condemnation. It's coming from a place of, oh, don't walk away. You don't want to walk away from this. That's our hope and that's our prayer.